Hello and welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. Our mission here is to offer hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. What follows is the audio from selected videos posted on Recovering from Religion's YouTube channel. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. It is my unparalleled delight and privilege to introduce Seth Andrews who, as most of you know, was a video producer and former Christian broadcaster. He now hosts The Thinking Atheist, one of the most popular online atheist communities and podcasts in the world. And just note, was a huge help for me in my deconversion process and so many others. The Thinking Atheist is not a person. It's an icon encouraging all to reject faith and to pursue reason and evidence. Seth has also authored several books, Deconverted, Sacred Cows, Ghost Stories, and the most recent book, Confessions of a Former Fox News Christian, which I gave to Sasha as a present last year. He also hosts the Thinking Atheist podcast on Spreaker, a podcast that has been downloaded over 50 million times, so that's just a little bit, since its launch in 2010. Seth, thank you so much for joining us. We can't wait to hear your discussion this morning. Oh, that's a lovely introduction. I'd, I'd like you to start at the beginning and do it all over again. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Well, I've got a, I mean, kind of a canned presentation with, uh, it's very slides heavy. And uh, then after that, yeah, I'm, I'm not Yoda, but I, I've been doing this for a little while. And maybe if nothing else, I don't have any great wisdom, but perhaps a word of encouragement if you have any questions or comments. I come out of a faith culture right? Fake it till you make it. Um, you know, w w belief over knowledge was really the order of the day. And I remember when I uh, had come out of that culture, if you see faith is not knowledge, you know, like Christopher Hitchens said, it's called faith because it's not knowledge. Faith is claiming to know what you do not know. So like when they play those advertisements for politicians every couple of years, you know, he's a man of faith and the music swells. And I always thought, you know, what would that look like if you had replaced faith with what it really is? He's a man who claims to know what he does not know. You know, it, it doesn't sound nearly as good that way. And so I wanted the thinking atheist just to be a prompt to all of us, you know, let's just leave our brains engaged all the time. Some people say, isn't that redundant? Aren't all atheists thinking atheists? No, 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 they're not. You have not seen my inbox. I wish it was true but I think we could all use a kickstart in our reasoning centers. It was recently before COVID that I went to the dentist, actually the uh, dental hygienist go in every six months and they clean your teeth. Right. And, um, she was done and she consulted the dentist who's a buddy of mine and they started like, and they're talking to each other. And then, uh, he comes down, his name is Randy. He says, Hey, uh, he said, I just, you know, I just wanted you to know, did you know that, that you grind your teeth? And of course, my first thought was, uh, yeah, and I'm an atheist in Oklahoma. <laughs> of course, I grind my teeth. You know, you know what it's like being an atheist here in Jesus Town, Tulsa, Oklahoma? It's the Bible Belt, which is also known, I think, as the uh, Divorce Belt. We are the teen pregnancy belt. We're the meth belt. We are the porn use belt. 
out of 50 states, out of 50 states, ranked for online porn use. Bible Belt, Oklahoma is at number five. We're at number five on the list. If you're curious, Mississippi comes in at number three. Arkansas just below us at number six. Tied at uh, number eight for porn use, Louisiana and Florida. Don't tell that to Florida's governor. Texas just after that. Interestingly as well, the number one state in the union for online porn use is none other than Utah, Mormon country. This huge repression culture, right? So what happens if you try to repress sexuality out of people? They will find a way to, if you'll pardon the expression, scratch that itch. And of course, you can insert your own Mormon underwear joke. By the way, I saw this meme online. I just totally cracked up. It said, naked and afraid, Mormons on their wedding night. And I just thought that was absolutely freaking hysterical. Anyway, I live in Oklahoma, United States, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Born and raised here, never left. And there are a lot of things I really do love about it. Uh, this is our governor, Governor Kevin Stitt. He looks and acts pretty much just like all of our governors who have come before. They are Bible-waving bullhorns for Christian privilege in a state right here where 79% of Oklahomans claim some flavor of Christianity, right? Four out of five say we're Christian. If you want a snapshot of that kind of thing, what, what the rest of us have to put up with, okay? This is an absolutely true story from back in 2015. The Oklahoma State Supreme Court made a ruling on this Ten Commandments statue that was uh, on the state capitol grounds. And the state Supreme Court, believe it or not, ultimately, after it was installed in 2012 and it became a big legal battleground, and in 2015, it ruled it to be unconstitutional. It's got to go. Okay, and of course, you can imagine what the 80 or the 79% of Oklahoma Christians did. They just totally lost their shit, okay? So despite the fact that a, re a relatively recent religious literacy uh, survey has revealed that 60% of Americans, including Oklahomans, six out of 10, could not name for you five of the 10 commandments, okay? They, they know all the words to Bohemian Rhapsody. Right? They do not, they cannot tell you even five of what are ostensibly the most important commands ever given to humankind. But we must have it, and we must have it installed on taxpayer-funded property. Oh no, the Oklahoma Supreme Court has ruled against us. What are we going to do? Well, this cannot stand. True story. These guys are the glory riders from Texoma Cowboy Church in Wichita Falls, and they just decided, well, Something's got to be done in defense of our Lord. So they left Texoma Cowboy Church in Wichita Falls, and they rode to the Oklahoma State Capitol, and they carried this. It's kind of hard to see. It's a low-res picture that I've blown up. This is their own stone-engraved copy of the Ten Commandments. So they just straight up rode it into Oklahoma to the estate capitol grounds where it was received by then-Governor Mary Fallon on the capitol steps. She actually came out and she greeted them on the steps and said, thank you so much for bringing these Ten Commandments. Thank you for standing up for our good Christian values. And our governor took a moment to pray with them 
on our taxpayer-funded state capital steps. Hashtag irony. Speaking of Ten Commandments monuments, this is Roy Moore. You probably heard about him, former Alabama Supreme Court justice. This guy, by the way, accused of sexually assaulting minors. He's received money from white supremacist group. He was endorsed by Trump one week before a special election back in 2017. He says the Bible's Ten Commandments are the foundation for moral law in the United States. Total theocracy language. And he was behind the install of a Ten Commandments monument on governmental property back in 2001. And it was ruled unconstitutional. You cannot do this. And uh, Roy Moore, he refused to remove it. He was removed as Alabama Chief Justice. He installed this monument in his office and he ran for Alabama State Senate shortly thereafter. I mean, for me, there are, there are as few things as terrifying as using the Bible as moral law. And through the Zoom meet, I can see the nodding of heads. Yes, I see that hand. This is religious language. Yes, I see that hand. There's a guy, he's a humorist and author. His name is A.J. Jacobs, does a lot of writing for Esquire magazine. He put out this 2015 book called The Year of Living Biblically. This guy decided he was going to try as much as he could, as close to the letter as he could, to live according to the specific edicts of the Christian Bible, and he was going to do it for 12 months, a full year. This is an actual visual chronicle because he's not allowed to shave. If you read the Old Testament, you're not supposed to trim your beard. So that's him in the top left, and then after a year, that's him in the bottom right. Okay, Huge transformation. Leviticus 19 says, don't trim your beard. He refused to wear mixed fa fabrics. He wouldn't touch his wife when she was on her period, right? Because if she's menstruating, she's unclean, so he's not supposed to touch her. This was, she was very unhappy <laughs> about this nature of their relationship. He just he called her unclean. That never bodes well. Uh, it was on the Sabbath. He had his friends open the fridge for him because that constitutes work. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. If there were suggestive photographs in magazines and stuff, he would cover them up with tape so that it was removing the lustful elements from his eyes or his vicinity. He refused to eat shellfish. That's totally biblical. Leviticus tells us, whatever hath no fins nor scales in the water, that shall be an abomination. No, no, slavery is not an abomination in the Bible. That's not a problem. No, no, no. It's eating lobster and uh, shrimp. Uh, that, that's a that's uh, he blew uh, the ram's horn to usher in Jubilee. He actually had a ram's horn in his house. It's awesome. And here's the interesting thing. When A.J. Jacobs tried to live the Bible biblically, literally, right? He tried to live biblically, as pastors often talk about. It's important we live biblically. And he decided he was going to be as close to the letter as possible. He discovered you can't actually do it because the Bible commands execution of gay people, the stoning of adulterers, the stoning of disobedient children, all these other things, right? Actually, the truth is he did strike up a conversation. He found this old guy who admitted that he um, had, uh, had sex well outside of marriage with somebody. And uh, so <laughs> Jacob's deemed him an adulterer 
and he reached down and grabbed lawn pebbles and stoned him <laughs> with lawn pebbles. The guy was totally pissed off. <laughs> anyway, the book's really funny. It's a funny book. You can find it on Kindle pretty cheap. But, you know, he wasn't going to kick his wife out of the house for seven days during menstruation per Leviticus. So he had to skip over all this stuff in the Bible because a year of living biblically is actually really terrifying. There's an internet meme that sums it up. It says, let's play a game, open the Bible to a random passage and do exactly what it says. The last one to go to jail wins. It's funny because it's true, tragically true. And yet how many times in this country, hell, we just saw Hobby Lobby do it over the 4th of July. Are we told that the United States' very foundation is the Christian Bible. This Pastor Robert Jeffress, mega pastor, First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, he certainly thinks so. He was on Donald Trump's Evangelical Advisory Board. Why the hell does a state church-separated nation have an Evangelical Advisory Board? Anyway, he gave a sermon, big sermon back in uh, June of 2018, called America is a Christian Nation. And in that sermon broadcast, not just nationally, but worldwide on the web, Dr. Jeffress said this. America was not founded as a nation that is neutral toward Christianity. America was founded as a Christian nation. The United States belongs to his God. Its leaders are God-ordained, unless, of course, they're Democrats. Its purpose is to do the will of God. This is Paula White from the inauguration. She was consecrating the marriage of this country and her specific deity. And join our nation to your purpose. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The psalmist declared, let your favor be upon this one nation under God. Let these United States of America be that beacon of hope to all people and nations under your dominion, a true hope for humankind. Now, this is an inauguration funded with the tax dollars of Christians, Catholics, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Jainists, Sikhs, Wiccans, Taoists, Deists, Seculars, Atheists, and yet it was like a Christian church service as was much of the theatricality of that particular administration. Paula White said she answered Donald Trump's call to serve at the White House because saying no to Trump would be like saying no to God. These are her words. By the way, this is the same Paula White that enjoys a massive net worth, millions of dollars, while continuing to ask her audience to send her money, otherwise their lives might end in disaster. I am speaking prophetically by the Holy Spirit, and you are to sow a $3,000 seed. When you obey the voice of the Lord, and you do what God's telling you to do, you need to send in $35,000. You need to send in that $100,000 check. I'm telling you, and God has mandated, if you do not write that P.O. box, and you do not call that toll-free number, and you do not become a ministry of sustainer, you will never see sustainment in your life, and your dream will die. Your dream will die if you don't write that check. This is extremely convenient language. Paula White apparently skipping over that command in the Christian New Testament out of 1 Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, meaning she's not allowed to teach half of the people 
that she is ostensibly teaching. From the local courts to the Supreme Court, there is a mad dash, and you have seen it, my friends, of these evangelical Christian nationalists to secure as much power as humanly possible. This is former Energy Secretary Rick Perry. He says Donald Trump's appointment was part of America's religious destiny. He called him the chosen one. That's language echoed by Donald Trump himself, the anointed one, right? And it's weird that Donald Trump would uh, sort of say something along those lines. You know, he sort of deified himself because, uh, you know, thou shalt have no other gods before me seems like an important commandment, one of the commandments. But Trump announced his own omniscience on many occasions. I just had to play you this short montage. Nobody knows this stuff better than me. Nobody knows more about taxes than I do and income than I do. Nobody, Nobody knows, knows more about, about construction, construction than I do. Nobody knows more about campaign finance than I do. I know more about drones than anybody. Nobody knows much more about technology, this type of technology, certainly, than I do. Nobody knows more about technology than me. Nobody's in the history of this country has ever known so much about infrastructure as Donald Trump. I know the H-1B, I know the H-2B, nobody knows it better than me. I know more about ISIS than the generals do, believe me. I understand things, I comprehend very well, okay? Better than, I think, almost anybody. And by the way, who knew the other side of the picture better than me? I knew it. Nobody knows more about environmental impact statements than me. I understand the power of Facebook maybe better than almost anybody. I know more about renewables than any human being on Earth. Nobody knows more about polls than me. I know more about courts than any human being on Earth. I know more about steel workers than anybody that's ever run for office. I know more about golf than Obama knows. Nobody knows more about banks than I do. Nobody knows more about trade than me. Well, obviously, he doesn't know about nuclear weapons. I know more about nuclear weapons than he'll ever know. I understand the tax laws better than almost anyone. Who knows more about lawsuits than I do? I'm the king. I know more about offense and defense than they will ever understand. And nobody even understands it but me. It's called devaluation. I understand money better than anybody. I understand the system better than anybody. Nobody knows more about debt than I do. Nobody knows the game better than me. I know more about contributions than anybody. And who knows more about the word apprentice than Donald Trump? I understand politicians better than anybody. Nobody knows politicians better than me. Who knows the other side better than me? Who knows the other side better than me? I think I know more about the other side than almost anybody. And I understand the other side. Perhaps I understand it better than anybody else. I was the fair-haired boy. Nobody knows more about it than me. I know more than these politicians. These guys don't know anything. I know a lot. I know more than I'm ever going to tell you. The truth is I'm actually a modest person. Very modest. No, I know he's not in the White House anymore, but he remains one of the point people in the Christian nationalist push. Not that I think he knows anything about Christ. I would pay $1,000 of my own money to give this man a five-minute Bible quiz on camera. I would, I would pay $1,000 out of my savings to have five minutes to do a Bible quiz with him on camera, because I'm convinced he knows nothing about it. But if you have read his story and you understand the arguments from people who know him, like his former personal attorney, he understood the utility of weaponizing religion and God language to consolidate power, Christian nationalism. And American Christians, many of them have believed that he is in fact the chosen one. We've seen a cult mentality. There's a cult expert named Stephen Hassan. He wrote a book called The Cult of Trump, where he can 
do no wrong. Everything is a sign of his appointment. Remember back at the inauguration, January 20th, 2017, Franklin Graham, the evangelist, saw sprinkles falling from the clouds and declared it some kind of a baptism from on high. Mr. President, in the Bible, rain is a sign of God's blessing. And it started to rain, Mr. President, when you came to the platform. <laughs> what the actual fuck? <laughs> What's more likely? that God changed the weather to baptize the chosen one, or that Washington, D.C. sees nine days of average rainfall in the month of January. It's mega pastor John Hagee. He's been declaring we are a Christian nation. He'll just say it outright. If you don't like it, get out. Like, get on a plane and get out. He said so just a few days ago. He's a Christian Zionist. So he doesn't merely see the state of Israel as the establishment of a Jewish nation nation for political reasons. He sees it as marking the return of the Jews to Zion. This is part of an end times narrative, which is a precursor to the return of Jesus Christ, right? The second coming and or the rapture. Speaking of Zionism, a few years ago, U.S. Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo told CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network, that Trump might have been divinely appointed like Queen Esther to protect God's people by fortifying the Jewish state of Israel. Trump had just recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Now, Pompeo, as an elected official, official, we pay his salary, and he represents a state church-separated nation. He saw the whole Israeli uh, thing not as a logical event, a human event, a political strategy, a human rights issue, but something that was prophesied about in the Bible, foreign policy based in the Christian superstition. We had uh, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos in charge of our freaking public school system on record saying she thinks the reform of public education should, quote, advance God's kingdom. Those are her words, her specific God, the Christian God. We got taxpayer-funded schools in places like Florida, Louisiana, South Dakota. They are now legally required to conspicuously display religious banners that invoke God. Yeah, these power player lobbyist organizations like Project Blitz. Back in 2017, they brought 75 bills in more than 20 states. 75 bills that did nothing but promote Christian privilege, a theocracy around the Christian Bible. They wanted Bibles and Christian prayers in our schools, religious excuses to discriminate against non-Christians, gays, Muslims, and LGBT people, biblically informed prohibitions on female reproductive choice, and the embedding of a single religion in a nation that is supposed to separate the church and the state and represent all of us. We are a representative republic. What about in Alabama, right? They uh, voted, 25 Republicans, all white guys in Alabama voted into law draconian measures to restrict the reproductive rights of women, and they used the Bible as their reasoning source, as their justification, reinforced by Governor Kay Ivey, who is also a Christian nationalist. And she said her reason for signing this draconing and anti-abortion bill, it was rooted in her belief in a God. She was untroubled with the whole every life is precious thing when it came to the death penalty, right? 
because she had just signed the Fair Justice Act, which essentially ramped up executions. That's not a problem. No, no, no. No, they, they're more interested in the fetus. I guess she's a fan of Old Testament justice. People like you and me dare to challenge or criticize this foisting of Christianity upon all of us. And everybody then who is foisting it and who is promoting it and enjoying the privilege of it, they defend themselves by doing what? They scream that we're under attack. We are being persecuted. Our religious freedom is under assault. That's U.S. Attorney General William Barr complaining about these militant secularists attacking this great nation. That's you and me, folks, right? Just people who don't believe in God. We are not just secular people. We are militant. We are attacking our own nation from within, right? We're like uh, an autoimmune disease attacking the body from within. We say religion's a private thing. It's not a government thing. They scream our religious freedoms under attack. Public schools are not churches. Religious freedoms under attack. Christian monuments don't belong on taxpayer-funded capital buildings. Our religious freedoms under attack. You're pitching a national religion and weaponizing the name of God for your own purposes. Our religious freedom is under attack. You choose, voluntarily choose, just say happy holidays in the December, January months. I think there are nine major holidays in that eight-week period. A lot of people just want to be more inclusive. Hope you have a great holiday. Happy, I hope it's a great holiday. Happy holidays. And what do they do? They scream Christianity, the Christian Jesus, the baby Jesus, the nativity Jesus, and all who worship the nativity Jesus are all under attack because, of course, we are a Christian nation. And this stuff plays so well to the Fox News crowd. I wrote a lot about this in my recent book. Evangelicals, honestly, that are so thin-skinned that they lose their minds when somebody has the audacity to disagree with them. You and I are not attacking. We're just doing this. Hey, hang on just a second. Does this make sense? Is this constitutional? Is this moral? We're called the attack mob because we say you, you've got it wrong. It's not right for you to do this. It's not what our founders intended. They were not all deeply religious people. Some weren't even marginally religious people. The Constitution does not support you. We are not a Christian nation. I'm reminded of that famous Emerson quote. He says, let me never fall into the vulgar mistake of dreaming that I am persecuted whenever I am contradicted. And this was true when I was a devout believer. I sure hated being contradicted. And so I'd say, well, they're, they're persecuting me. You know, they're coming after me. They want to make me illegal. You know, they want to make my faith illegal. I remember there was a song we played on um, KXOJ Christian Radio by an artist named Morgan Cryer. And it's very much that type of false persecution song. You can still pray in the USA. And the song had this narrative where these seculars one day make prayer illegal in this country. And there's a line in the song that says, one day you may hear it, praying is a felony. I guess they'll call us criminals. And I guess that's what I'll be. And we would thump our chest and say, yeah, you know, we're rocking for Jesus. Because, you know, it's not just that they want equality. No, no, no. They want to strip us of our rights. Those un-American, awful, treasonous liberals and secular humanists. 2018 Fox News opinion piece by Anthony DeStefano said that 
Atheists just want to silence everybody else through intimidation. He also calls us the most dangerous people on the planet, right? Those who do not believe in God, according to this guy, the most dangerous people on earth. He blamed us for more deaths, murders, bloodshed than any other quote-unquote belief system in the history of the world. The fear machine is now spinning at full speed, and American evangelicals have bought into that fear. And here's an example. Political scientists Ryan Burge and Paul Jupe surveyed over a thousand people, including a great many white evangelicals. This was May of 2019. And they ask them a few questions about how different groups see each other. You know, we all have our tribes and stuff, right? Well, the majority of white evangelicals in the survey, the majority of white evangelicals were terrified that their political opponents were going to strip away their rights. 60% said that atheists would disallow First Amendment rights and liberties. They think, more than half of them think, that you and I essentially want to nullify the Constitution and strip away their rights per the First Amendment. 58% of evangelicals said the same thing about Democrats. Democrats want to come and prevent them from holding rallies, teaching, speaking freely, even running for public office, right? Not just disagreeing, but we are attacking and removing their liberties. 58% of white evangelicals said the same. 32% uh, of white evangelicals would give atheists the right to speak, teach, or run for office. That's not even a third, right? Not even a third of white evangelicals would give you or me the right to participate freely in our own ostensibly free country, right? It, it's terrifying. They see us as dangerous, immoral, evil agents of the devil. Conversely, if you're looking for more tolerance for the rights of people you oppose, it's the atheists by more than double who say, yeah, we'd give fundamentalists the right to speak and assemble and teach and run for office, the number at 53% for Democrats. Now, that number is still kind of alarmingly low because I think if we don't believe in God, the solution to the evangelicals is not to strip their constitutional right to speak and assemble and run for office and all those types of things. So it's still an, kind of an alarming number, but it's interesting to see that so many more people who didn't hold to a God were not threatened by those who did hold to a God. By that measure, who is being more faithful to the United States Constitution? And yet there's this notion that Christianity is persecuted, and it sells so well to those who are buying it. Who's buying it? The freaking evangelicals. And it's interesting to watch them scream persecution in a nation where they can hold and express in personal belief. They can pray privately. They can get together in groups and pray. They can pray on the lawn. They can play on the street. They can, they can go to church at pretty much any time, almost anywhere. They can have religious assemblies. Bibles, no problem. Right? There's a Christian retailer on every block. You can order it on Amazon. You can have as many Bibles in your house as you want. You want to wear Jesus stuff? cross earrings and cross necklaces, you want Jesus t-shirts, and you get a tattoo with the crown and the thorns around your arm, people do that, knock yourself out. Christian radio and television, freaking everywhere. Buy religious books. How many apologist books are bestsellers? Even Christian fiction books are bestsellers. You want a Jesus bumper sticker on your car or a fish emblem on your window? Knock yourself out. 
You want to put up a, a religious symbol on your property, especially around the holidays. Don't tell me that we atheists are flipping out because a devout Christian puts a nativity scene in their lawn in December. We don't care. It's private property. It's your own. You can celebrate it any way you want, right? Make your Christmas your Christmas. We don't care. But that doesn't serve the persecution narrative. We must be misrepresented as those who simply want to remove all instances or expressions of Jesus Christ, even from the private lives of believers. And finally, you know, Christians can come and go as they please in an evangelical capacity, right? They go door to door without having to worry about being arrested. They can hop on a plane, go to other countries, and spread the quote-unquote good news of Jesus Christ, and it's absolutely legal for them to do so. It's weird seeing these people, these massively privileged, spoiled, rotten evangelicals telling us that they are the martyrs. Why? What serves that? Well, beyond the fact that it's a defensive position, it's a shoot the messenger position, it's a way to shut down criticism position, it also speaks to a verse in Matthew chapter 5. Look, the best Christians are the ones who are persecuted. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus said himself that, you know, if you are being persecuted, then it means you are really my champion. You're doing Christianity right. I mean, if you're a Christian and the devil doesn't really care what you do, that means you're ineffectual. You're impotent. You're not really doing anything. You're certainly not on the front lines of the culture wars to help win hearts and minds in the sake of Jesus Christ. Jesus said that Christianity gets blessed when it's persecuted for the sake of Jesus. American Christianity says, well, we get to freely believe and express our faith. We're not persecuted, so let's manufacture a persecution narrative, and then let's use it to defend our dominance over others that we relegate to second-class status. And then we had Trump, right, scrambling with all the evangelicals to secure as much power and influence as they possibly could. And it continues even now, stacking the courts, submitting the bills, appoint the administrators, seize the day, for the hour is short. I agree with Nick Fish over at American Atheist. President Nick Fish said this, he said, this administration's a smash and grab for Christian nationalists. Get everything they can while they can until everything implodes around them. Judges, exemptions, money, anything that isn't nailed down. Why? Why the panic? Why the desperate push? And here's the good news, my friends. The Pew Research Center did a survey of religion in the United States, and it shows a steady decline in the number of people who identify as Christian. It's going down. A steady rise in the religiously unaffiliated, not necessarily atheists. This isn't isn't an atheist number. 26% is not atheists. But we're none. We're we're, we're not religious. Religion doesn't play a meaningful or necessary part in our lives. That's, That's a quarter. That's a quarter of Americans right now. Okay? That number really goes up with the 29 and under crowd. Our future in this country refreshingly less religious, certainly not evangelical Christian nationalists. 
So the Christian nationalists see this writing on the wall, right? The demographic writing on the wall, and they lose their minds because statistically, demographically, their days are numbered. The tide is turning. They are going to have to share the table with the rest of us. Now, I think this needs to give us hope about the long game. I think their desperation reveals that they, too, see the future. They see an increasingly less religious United States. And those people don't want the government to be a church. And they don't want a theocracy, and they want the Constitution honored and the state church line protected, and those Americans vote. The opponents of Christian nationalism, we don't want to make religious belief illegal. We don't want to shut down churches. We don't want to keep people from saying voluntarily Merry Christmas or whatever. Hell, I'm an atheist, and I say it. We don't want to abolish private prayers or outlaw the Bible or to infringe on authentic constitutional religious liberty. You and I just realized that our founding fathers purposefully designed a nation that was not ever supposed to be a church. I love this tweet that went out by Andrew Seidel, constitutional attorney, and he works with the Free, uh, yeah, Freedom From Religion Foundation. He said, dear white evangelicals, we're not coming for your rights. We're coming for your privilege. You'll be able to worship as you see fit so long as you don't use government power to promote your religion or use your religion to violate another's rights. Oh, it's beautiful. Hey, you know, the Christian nation crowd, the infect American law with the Bible crowd, the discriminate against our fellow human beings in the name of God crowd. We're not coming for your rights, but we are coming for your privilege. We're coming for your privilege. And that tide is turning. The nation is slowly evolving, but it is evolving. And people are less and less and less and less interested in being told who they are and what they think and how they should act and blah, blah, blah. Christian nationalism is seeing its days fine. Those days are numbered. The future is coming. And I couldn't be more excited about it. And that's my presentation today, my friends. I hope you enjoyed um, I am at your disposal. If you have any comments or questions, challenge, disagreements, you want to throw some fresh fruit or canned fruit at the screen, <laughs> I'm at your disposal, my friend. Seth, thank you very much for the presentation. I really, really appreciated it. And uh, kind of, it did, I agreed with so much of what you had said and kind of felt that uh, from the last four years just being uh, with our, our, our past president, just being front and center and blatant as well. So thank you for that. Yeah, um, I, I do probably need to apologize because it's so Trump heavy, but it was written right on the tail end of the Trump administration. And as we have seen in the sort of golden calf theatricality that's been going on even since, he remains kind of the chosen one. I think mm -hmm. there are reasons for that, which is a whole other speech. But I think it speaks to um, there's there are shades of authoritarianism at play. I think uh, Christians, fundy religions often rally behind savior figures. Uh, I think there's a demonization and otherization of all things that are not Trumpian, which is why you see the QAnon type conspiracies. You know, the the opponents are not just in disagreement politically, philosophically, theologically, but they are blood drinking, child sacrificing agents of Satan. You know, the reason the QAnons take off is because there's a culture that has effectively applied magical and even apocalyptic thinking 
to the power players in American politics. Yeah. And so uh, my apologies, but I felt like those examples were necessary. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, we do have um, several questions. Um, what do you think we can do about this? Like individually, um, we see that uh, we see this in our friends and, and this Christian nationalism in our friends and our family. So what are kind of your thoughts? Like if I was approached by my friend and kind of goes down this Fox News rabbit hole and what, what do you think are some things that uh, I could use some skills some tools some to, uh, to approach this? Well, you're talking to a guy who has not. If I encounter someone who is promoting a false, debunked, damaging, discriminatory idea, right? But they are doxastically closed. They're a closed system. I know they are not listening. And that I will not convince them, especially in the moment. They are sending, they are not receiving. I find it important to counter and contradict and refute whatever false claims are being made, but I don't have any, I've never had any success convincing them in the moment. And I don't spend my time trying to convince them in the moment. I used to try that way madness lies because <laughs> I did not fully understand at the time how beliefs are formed. We have discovered, psychology long discovered, but I was late to the party and finally doing some homework on it. But when a belief is linked to our identity and that belief is challenged, the same parts of our brain, the amygdala, the same part fires up, that fires up during a physical threat. This, we actually have the same fight or flight response in regard to identity held ideas that we do when it comes to our physical safety. People double down, the walls go up, the fists get clenched, the blood pressure happens, people start to raise the temperature, you know? And um, those are not my area of focus. I have not had any luck breaking through. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm more interested in the people who are starting to crack the door on their own, who are genuinely starting to listen, who are really interested in some dialogue. So for the, for the closed systems, I refute it and say, actually, it's incorrect, and I'm on the record as, as saying such. But I don't waste a lot of time in debate or discussion with them unless there were other people watching from a position of safety. Um, beyond that, um, I'm most interested in engaging in the discussions with people who might genuinely be interested in a different point of view. That's where I've had more, more luck. Uh, you know, otherwise, I... I wish I had a magic bullet, you know, for the mm. Fox News crowd, yeah. but I've never convinced a member of my family. Uh, I've, I've got people all, all the way up and down the street who are hardcore Bible thumping Fox News Christians. I don't even engage, you know, hoping one day, maybe if they start to come to a moment of critical mass in their own lives, like I did, right? And you start to, you take that first step forward and go, wait a minute, what if? And then they come to me. Right, because I've been on full display. They know I'm here. They know what, where I'm. Uh, I'm at what I'm about. Maybe they'll come to me on their own terms, feeling safe enough to do so, and that's when productive discussions begin. So, kind of following up on that too, the reverse of it is: how would 
like I can totally hear that it may be fruitless to um, have this kind of discussion with a true um, believer in uh, in this stuff. But how, on the flip side, how would I deal with it internally? Um, how would it, how do you think that it would be like, or how would you walk away from this kind of conversation and be okay with it? Well, and I saw somebody in the chat who brought up a good point. Another great tool that I use is some SE street epistemology, the Socratic method. I will throw out a few questions. And again, this is, I'm seed planting. So if someone says, of course, the contend commandments should be on display at the Arkansas Capitol. It's absolutely. And then so I'll respond with a question, right? It's always a question. Do you feel like that the Ten Commandments are perhaps the greatest commandments ever given? Do you feel like we really need the Ten Commandments to, to be a, a good nation? Do you feel like they're critical? Absolutely, they're critical. Okay, can you tell me what they are? Now, I haven't attacked them. I haven't called them stupid or any of these horribly unproductive, and I, I despise that tactic. But I simply left the burden of proof where it belongs. All right, they're all that important. Tell me what they are. Do you believe the Adam and Eve story? Yes, absolutely. Can you tell me who, who wrote the book of Genesis? I'm just, I mean, I, I don't know. Do you know who wrote the book of Genesis? And you just watch them tilt. And then, you know, they may get frustrated and then they go off on their own. It's possible you've planted a seed so that, again, at some point, they start to crack their own door open. In my own life, though, uh, how do I deal with the fact that they're not listening? Was that the spirit of your question? Yeah. How can you walk away without uh, long-term being super angry and frustrated at them? Because that's something that I experienced myself. Like, oh, why don't they listen? I could totally see how clearly they're screwed up and their their logic is not working and it's circular. And <laughs> how, I, I, I honestly, I, I do get, I, I'm angry now. I, I'm, I'm angry. I, I, I'm frustrated. I'm disappointed. Yeah, I'll tell you, 2016 to 2020 was a revelation for a lot of us. You know, we knew it was kind of crazy out there, but we, I don't think we really knew how dangerous things were. Right. You know, evangelical Christianity is really kind of like a cornered animal with the rising demographic of the nuns, and they're going wild. And, um, and I do, I, I struggle with it. And I'll tell you where I really struggle with it, Eric, is on social media. I, I go online and before you know it, I, it started to affect me. Mm -hmm. I, I thought the world's on fire. Everything sucks. Everybody's shouting at each other. No one's listening. There's just nothing but insanity. I had to limit my time. In fact, on my own pages, I actually will log on usually in the mornings and set up the releases of posts for the rest of the day because I found it was affecting me mentally. And I actually did a show a few months ago called Twitter is not life because people treat each other differently online than they do in the one-on-ones. They don't talk to each other. They don't engage each other. Their voices right. aren't as kind. They more quickly other each other. They know what some people are watching. So they mostly just want to win. And I look smarter if you look stupid and fuck you and blah, blah, blah. And honestly, it, it, it's, it started, it, 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 it killed part of my heart. I, if it's anybody else know what that's like, like you, it killed part of my heart. Yeah. And I had to protect myself against that. 
and uh, try to remember. And I always say that line whenever I get frustrated online and how people interact is Twitter is not life. <laughs> you know? And then whenever possible, I try to find moments where I can engage people in a meaningful way. And that means a phone conversation or a Zoom chat or, or something that's not where you're an avatar fighting against another avatar. But no, brother, I feel anger. I feel frustration. I feel disappointment. And the balm that I have and the good medicine that I have discovered is the medicine of community. The people like you who remind me that I'm not alone, I'm not crazy, that there are so many wonderful people out there that do get it, that are interested in trying to be humanist and help other people. And, you know, they're trying to heal from their wounds and, and build on their scars and try to help make other people uh, less oppressed by religion. Community has been my ticket for better mental health, for lack of a better way of saying it. So if I may sum up, it sounds like you're saying uh, rely and lean on your community, the people who care for you, um, people that, that think similar to you, and then choose your battles. Um, mm -hmm. Choose who uh, and when and when you're ready to, to, to have these conversations and fight. I used to argue with my mother and father, right, my evangelical parents all the time. When I first came out of the faith, right? I had started to crack open the door. So I went back to the Bible and I began to learn the basics of evolution and cosmology and whatnot. And it was like discovering a whole new universe. And so many of the people watching know what that's like. And you think, where have I been? Where has this all been? Why have I been so sheltered? What, how, why did it take me so long? Everybody has that, right? Mm -hmm. So then I, in my naivety, think all I have to do is go to my family and friends who are evangelicals and they know I'm not an idiot. And I'll just show them all the stuff that I've learned and they will, we'll all lock hands together and we will, we, there will be songs and music and there will be white light from the sky and gold confetti will fall and we will all frolic into a more rational world together. And it never happened. It just never happened. And again, because people, people's minds are often not changed on data. People who have an emotional connection to an idea, I believe you will not change their minds with data. People change their minds often through the changing of social circles and through good storytelling. And I think we need to be better storytellers in the movement, not fake stories. We're telling a true story, the story of science, the story of humanity. But instead of throwing bullet points at them, we're actually humanizing and creating a three-dimensional picture. And I'm sorry, I feel like I'm rambling, but but I, I had my own journey had become cognizant of how often I failed and how frustrated I have become. And what has helped me is every time somebody calls the show and they said, you know, I, I, uh, I was questioning and you were there or another non-believer reminded me that maybe it's going to be okay. And, and it's been hard during COVID, but even coming together virtually with people who, you know, I, I know you have my back, you know, I've got your back community as part of a human condition. That's been good medicine for me. And I think there are more of us every day and I'm hoping that we empower each other to be louder and prouder out there. Yeah. Thank you. I'll keep the answers more short. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is fine. You asked me a question. I'm like, well, you know, back when the earth cooled and dinosaurs <laughs> roamed the earth, Eric. Seth, I asked for the time, not how the watch was made. Okay. <laughs> no, right. I'm kidding. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. And a lot of what you say makes tremendous sense. I think the last few minutes of how we look after ourselves through those conversations that we either can't have because 
our loved ones are too attached to their identity and they're having such a pure emotional response. Um, that really rings true. Community is a, <laughs> well, as we spoke about support, Eric, in our favourite topic earlier in the, in the beginning, it is that sense that you really need. What I wanted to just ask you, though, Seth, is so listening to your presentation from Australia, a country that's considered secular, although right now we have a Christian evangelical prime minister who um, recently there was a bit of outrage here in Australia because there was footage of our prime minister saying that when he lays his hands on people, he is actually um, calling on the spirit without them knowing that that's what he's actually doing. That caused huge uproar out here. <laughs> Very mild in comparison, I know, but um, it is of concern to us, to a lot of us in Australia. There's a religious discrimination bill that is being debated right now in the House. And this discrimination bill is going to make it possible if it passes for religious institutions to discriminate their employees on the basis of religion. Um, so that concerns us enormously as to what could be happening here in Australia. Are we becoming more right-wing? I don't know. We do have a census coming up this year in August. So there is a big campaign um, about to launch um, encouraging Australians who don't have a religion, who don't go to church to mark no religion, because similar to the statistics that you mentioned right towards the end of your presentation, there is an increase in non-religious Australians. So the 2016 census showed 33% it was actually the largest cohort of any cohort um, saying that they weren't religious. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is we've got a similar trend, although muted, and there's other countries in the world that are fighting this nationalism, this Christian nationalism or whatever version of religion it is. What can we do practically if we can't have conversations with family or loved ones because it's just not productive? What can we do practically to try and move forward? That's a terrible way of wording your, it, but I your hope your question is: How do we fix the world? Okay, well that's not yeah. a problem. Yeah, thank that. No pressure on me. Uh, exactly, Jerry. <laughs> All right, here's here's what I'm interested in. Dr. Ryan Cragen at the University of Tampa, Florida, is a sociologist who has done a lot of research on societies and ideas and cultures and tribes within the human condition. And he discovered that the number one determiner for whether or not someone changed their perception about the world was changing their social circle. And I found that very, very interesting. When I was a devout evangelical, I didn't really associate, right? It, we're talking about a culture and you guys know about this. There's a Christian version of everything so that you don't step outside the boundary. Oh, you want music? We have Christian music. Oh, you want uh, daycare for your kid? We've got a Christian daycare. You need recovery programs, divorce recovery, addiction recovery. You got a singles program. You want recreation. You want intramural sports. You want to, you know, there's a Christian version of everything. What that does, it keeps you lock in, uh, locked on the hamster wheel so that you're not stepping out to really interact with the rest of the world. And it's so much easier to other people when you do that. But you know, so if I'm a devout evangelical and I'm talking about the atheist, you know, in this sort of uh, dehumanizing way, that's real easy. 
because I don't hang with them. I don't know any of them. They can be the other. But what happens if uh, there's a guy over at my office and, you know, he, he's an atheist and I, he's actually a really good dude and he loves his life and he's, he's, he seems to not have any problems and he's pretty centered and I think he's a smart guy. And, you know, all of a sudden I start to take the bricks out of that wall. It starts to dismantle this, these notions of the other. And I think that's one of the reasons that I encourage people wherever we are. And I'm in a roundabout way answering your question as to how we can change the culture. I think one of the first things that we can do when possible, when it's safe and, and good for us to do that, and that's a valid caveat, is we just need to be visible. My neighbors, evangelicals, God and country conservatives, and they're beautiful people. And I love them with all my heart. They know that I'm an atheist, but they knew me as a guy first. They knew me as the neighbor. They knew me as the one out walking Linus down the street. They knew me whenever we would swap stories and we'd see each other at the neighborhood cookout or whatever. And they realized, hey, that Seth guy's a good dude. And he and Natalie are a great couple and they seem to have love and purpose and they just really enjoy their company, right? They can't put me in that box. I've totally screwed up their categories. Once we have changed that social circle, once we have really denied them the opportunity to create this false narrative about us because they've already seen us in three dimensions as human beings, that's when the, the guard starts to go down. And that's, I, that's another, I think that also speaks to another reason why I'm more and more disappointed with how we interact on social media, because mm. we've dehumanized each other. I think, you know, humanizing people we disagree with who are not like, it's almost like when I was a believer and I was terrified of Muslims because all Muslims are like terrorists. What? Did I know any yeah. Muslims? No. Had I read the Quran? No. Do I know anything about the history of the faith? No. You know what happened when I met practicing Muslims? They were some of the most freaking beautiful people I've ever met in my life. And the same is true with people I knew who were Mormons and you know, they were people. And I think uh, being open about who I am allowed us to exist in the same space, making sure they knew me as a human being before they saw what I was about, you know. And uh, once we started to share the planet together in that way, I think perceptions begin to change. And once perceptions change, that's when conversations can begin. And that's been my number one. You know, if you can be who you are, because you never know who's watching. You never know who is thinking, oh my God, you know, I've got some doubts. Maybe he's onto something. Maybe we could talk. But it never happens if we're all sitting on our hands, you know? Yeah. No, that's really good. That's good. I like that. Uh, well, well, that, I got the Sherry seal of approval. I'm most. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of goes into um, the next question uh, as well. We talked about um, how uh, you had mentioned how um, fear is used as such a powerful motivator. And uh, I remember when I was an uh, early teenager reading the Frank Preddy book series, uh, This Present Darkness. <laughs> scared the living fuck out of me when I was a young impressionable teen. Like there was these spiritual battles going all over the place and I had no idea because I couldn't even see them. And so it really pulled this or uh, instilled this fear in me. What do you think that um, a person, an individual like myself uh, or other people can, what do you think they could do to identify 
that they're being controlled or they're being pulled along by that fear? And, and how do you think we can uh, work through that? And for those who aren't familiar with Peretti, Frank Peretti is a Christian fiction author who wrote a series of hugely, wildly popular apocalyptic fiction books. And so they were set, they were almost like uh, Stephen King meets, I'm trying to think of who, uh, who else he, he, I could mesh him with. But, but essentially, they were all flavored with this book of Revelation end times sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So there was a, you know, there are little drops that of, of quote unquote reality in them. And so Christian culture just lapped him up. But it really did speak to, I think, this weird obsession we had with the devil under every rock, uh, the influence of Satan on the culture, the end times, every generation believing this is the end. It's not going to get any worse than this. We know that God's return is eminent. He's not going to allow things to get any worse. Holy cow. How are we even alive? Look to the skies. The signs are everywhere, you know. Uh, for me, it took me a year and a half to get over my fear of hell. It's 2007, 2008. I'm going through a really hardcore journey out of my faith. It took me a year and a half, okay? I can't sleep at night. My gut's in a knot. I'm terrified of hell. I'm terrified of losing everything. My family's going to abandon me. My friends aren't going to know what to do with me. My employers are believers. If they fire me, I'm almost 40. What am I going to do with the rest of them? How am I going to pay my bills? What's going to happen? Who am I? What, who am I even? What are my values, right? And beyond that, if I get this wrong, I, if I hold to a literal hell, depart from me, all you who are cursed into a lake of everlasting fire and damnation. If I, if I hold to the word to the Bible, I will roast and be tortured and scream and cry forever. This question is too important to get wrong. And I understand how that fear locks a lot of people away from legitimate doubts and questions. What an amazing, what an amazing defense mechanism that fundy religions have created right. to keep themselves safe from challenge. If you blaspheme us, if you get this wrong, you will feel pain beyond imagination. It's an incredible tool for control. Mm -hmm. Understanding it was being used as a tool for control helped me partially. Secondly, surrounding myself with critics of hell theology and damnation theology and apocalypse theology, all who had good and salient points. In my case, it was Christopher Hitchens. Oh, he was just, he was unafraid of hell. He had blasphemed anytime he wanted to, and lightning never came out of the sky. And while he was blaspheming, he made absolute sense. I was like, that guy makes a lot of sense. And being surrounded by other people who I know are good people, who would never deserve hell, who have also rejected it, has helped me. Uh, and beyond all of that, embracing in my own mind an understanding that no just or moral deity would have ever even conceived of a hell. A worthy God, a God worthy of my allegiance, a God worth following, a God that it would be a father figure, would never toss me into the flames, would never torture me or punish me for trying to live an honest life. In fact, that God, any worthy God, would see me doing my very best to try to figure it out and to be authentic and live an honest life. And that God would reward the integrity of it. And that last notion alone has been my biggest ticket. God, a worthy, uh, if I had a child and saw my child genuinely trying desperately to do whatever was right and true, even if they got it wrong, there's no instance in which I would punish them for that. And there's no instance in any case 
or I would cause them to be tortured for even a minute, let alone all of eternity. Understanding that the morality of it totally falls apart with any objective look has tremendously helped me escape my own fears. Mm, yeah. You must have known what my next question was, Seth, because you just, just segued perfectly. <laughs> because basically what you had just describing was your own personal reflection on the whole hell theology and how you worked your way out of that from a position of fear to a position of logic. So then I suppose we understand when we talk with our family members who don't respect our position and they actually think that we're going to hell, they're having a pure emotional response then at that point because they're gripped by the fear that you've worked out of how do you help how do you how do you comfort how do you what do you say what do you say to help them not be so fearful because they think you've ha- i know you've had this from your parents they 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 believe that you're going to hell how do you combat that fear and comfort them somehow my father was on his deathbed uh, this a few weeks ago and i could tell and he was sitting in his chair that he had so much to say, he wanted to say, right? Before I die, I gotta fix my son who is going to hell. And he used to say to me, hell is a real place. And he believed in fire and brimstone. And it shows how totally damaged his perceptions of God's love are, you know, he worshiped my torturer, but he was so indoctrinated that he didn't really see the, the problem. Like I'm the problem. And he worships the guy who would, who would torture me, you know? And many in my family have, have, I think, demonstrated that tremendous fear that I will one day burn in hell. How do I balm that, right? How do I calm them yeah. down? And uh, I, the only thing I've been able to do is to, again, coming back to the Socratic method, is to lead with questions. Is there any circumstance in your life where you would burn your child for getting an answer wrong. If your child totally went off the rails and did something that you totally disapproved of and felt was really bad, is there any instance when you would douse them in gasoline and set them on fire? And of course they'd be like, well, I know I couldn't even think of it. And I'm like, thank you. Okay. Now I want you to begin to understand how I am trying to apply that same morality to the almighty father. I don't believe a a just and worthy God would ever light me on fire for the crime of trying to live an authentic life. It's almost like the hypothetical I use sometimes with Abraham and Isaac. People like to talk about what a wonderful man of faith Abraham in the Old Testament was. And so, you know, as we know in the story, God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son on the altar, you know, took took him up to the mountain and and was going to drive a knife into his chest. And Abraham is absolutely convinced that he was supposed to do this, right? And uh, it was just at the last second that the angel stayed his hand. But I, I say to them, I say, if God came to you the way he came to Abraham, and he asked you to sacrifice one of your children, would you do it? And which of your children would you choose? And they're not, they're just stunned. I, I would never I would, I would never, I would never harm. I'd rather have judgment from God. I wouldn't, I'm not going to harm my child. 
And, you know, then if they, they sort of pinball into, well, the angel state is hand, the, uh, the knife was not used. I'm always like, but until that last microsecond, Abraham was committed because he thought it was genuinely real. That's the part of the story I'm most interested in. Do you feel this is a moral command? Do you, do you think it's something that a, a good father would ever command someone else to do? And if not, are you not making a moral judgment outside of the model that you consider to be the foundation for all morality? You just made a moral judgment outside of that. See, right. using questions and situationals and stories in that way, I have found have given people a moment of pause. Sometimes they get frustrated. If you see them start to squirm and become uncomfortable, this is not always a bad thing. What it means is, I mean, hell, I started to change my mind from a position of discomfort. It's when I was made uncomfortable that I started to, you know, my cage was rattled that I started to check stuff. But maybe when they go back and they're lying in bed at night or sitting in, you know, in the, at the kitchen table with their own thoughts at some point, they're, they're mulling that over. You know what? What would I do? Does that make sense? Is that moral? And so those are the kinds of tactics that I like to use, situationals where people have to make moral judgments outside of the supposed moral book. Yeah. I, th I really like your answer to that. It's uh, what I hear, though, the challenge for me is how do I control my emotions <laughs> in mm -hmm. the midst of that discussion? I have a thought. I have a thought. And, and I've been guilty. I would talk to my mother and we we're throwing stuff back at each other and we were both yelling and it's counterproductive. Everybody's doubled down. I think one of us, I think I hung up on her. I can't remember. It was awful. It was awful. I have come to the point where I think, especially initially, when you engage people in this way, Rome was not built in a day. Use questions, stay calm, mm -hmm. keep it short. Right off the bat, you are planting a tiny seed. Right? You are starting the gears in motion. But if you're engaging a devout believer, you are not going to undo decades of indoctrination in a conversation over coffee. You're just not going to do it. I think you toss one or two things out quickly. You keep it calm and pleasant, even if it drives you crazy on the inside. You do not raise your voice and you don't allow them to take it. They're going to bait you. You can choose to not take the bait and it helps to know it's coming and to be prepared for it and keep it short. And if you do that, what you've done is you front loaded an opportunity for perhaps a conversation in round two, that's a couple minutes longer. And maybe after that, you get an email and maybe after that, there's an opportunity to go have dinner, but uh, keep it short. I've also found that the practice helps me. And this, you look like an idiot sitting in your car at the stoplight talking to yourself. <laughs> but you do situationals. If they say this, oh, that she's going to throw this out and then she's going to do this, what would I do? And you work it out. Sometimes I've had some people who say they're not good communicators. Seth, I don't have your communication ability. Fine, no problem. Sit down and bullet point it out on cue cards and read it to yourself. Writing it out and rereading it cements it in your brain and helps you to organize in conversational terms. And then you can do hypotheticals and prepare for any eventuality before you sit down. And the second after you've sat down, it starts to spin out of your control and you feel your blood pressure going up and the vein pops into your forehead and you're about to throttle somebody. You're able to realize what's happening, de-escalate and say, 
you know, I, I just want to stop here. And I, I really want to maybe continue this at another time. You know, these are people get passionate about these subjects. Sometimes they're very hard on relationships, but I think they're important. And our relationship is more important than our agreement here. Now I want to make sure that that's honored. And then you walk away and it's the hardest thing to do. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. But that's something I've had to teach myself over the years. I'm so glad this is being recorded because I can just snap that little bit there and play it over and over and over until that sinks in. Thank you, Seth. <laughs> I'm guilty. I, I, I did an online debate with somebody. This is, well, just, I, I, someone should have told me just to shut my mouth as soon as I get out of the faith. I needed a few years just to, just to get perspective, right? But I was pissed off. I was mad and I thought, no one's listening and I've got to go out and I'm going to fix it and I'm going to change the world and I got to go, go, go. And I'm a crusader by nature anyway. And I think I was on some apologist debate show and I was, I was terrible because I got mad and I was yelling in the phone. I wasn't listening. And I was, I, I took every piece of bait they threw at me and, you know, it took me years to finally think you are not changing anybody's mind. You are only making yourself crazy and really you're not helping and, uh, Working through it, situationalizing it, practicing it has helped me over the years. And that's what I encourage other people to do. Fantastic. I'm ready to go out there and do that. <laughs> well, I mean, that's just, an, that's just an opinion. You know, you can take it or leave it, Sherry. No, no, it's, um, it's very wise. Yeah, Seth, I found that uh, this, the same pattern happened with me too. I realized uh, where I was, uh, I had to rebuild my worldview and I got angry. Yeah. Um, I, and uh, the, some of the conversations that I had with people, I was angry. And um, it's, it's understandable. We have a right to be I, angry about it. Yeah. You know? yeah. I felt lied to, but there was like nobody I could blame. It, I couldn't blame my parents. I could, it was all just the system was the problem. And and I just felt like I was spinning my wheels. Allow a blathering guest another 30 seconds really quick. My big issue when it comes to my loved ones who were not listening and are not listening is not because I'm trying to disabuse them of their faith. I don't have any illusions that I am going to do that. They are well, they may one day go there. And if they call me wonderful, I'm about boundaries. Ex-believers come out. And people are, families give themselves permission to do and say things to other members of their family that they do not have the right to do. Mm. Parents will say, well, you're my child. Now I have the right to criticize what you do and to render judgment on who you are and to essentially define you because you were charged to carry on. You can see it in that line that parents use. That's not how we raised you. Right. Parents like to tell their children, you can grow up to be anything you want to be. They'll tell a child that. And then they spend most of their formative years limiting their options because they want you to be an echo of them in evangelical circles. For me, my encouragement to the ex evangelical to those recovering from religion is don't expect that you're going to change their minds. Your conversations need to be about boundaries and respect. No family member, no one has the right to tell you who you are, what you think, what your values are, what you should do, who you should love, what, what you are 
to your core. No one gets to do that. And anyone who injects constant negativity and crosses the boundary that you lay down, you have every right to issue a warning. And if they don't listen and they violate the boundary, you have every right to lock them out of your life permanently, or at least until you decide that you allow them back in because they finally decided they were going to play by the rules. And I think we as ex-believers, we have to start thinking about these relationships, not in terms of how do I fix my family's perceptions about God? That's a tough one. I think it's more about you, which means I need to establish boundaries. And if someone's going to inject negativity into my life and they're going to go after my kids and they're going to name and blame and shame me, blah, blah, blah. I say, you don't have permission to do this. If you don't stop, I am going to remove you from my circle. You give me no choice. If they violate it again, knowing the terms, then you close the door and you do so because you have the right to do so. You have a right to live without that constant injection of negativity. And I think people feel guilty. They're my parents. I should do it. I'm supposed to honor them. They've done so much for me. I owe them. I'm a bad child. No, 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 no. They do not have permission to tell you who you are. And you need to remind yourself of that. Look at yourself in the mirror. And you're like, I'm my own person. This is my journey. I get to take it on my terms. I'm setting a boundary. They violated it. They forced my hand. Give yourself permission to see it through that lens. I think it'll help tremendously. It's so yeah. important. I, I, I just love what you said then, because I think when you're saying about, but they're my parents or they're my family and coming from a Jehovah's Witness background where I am shunned from my family and they don't talk to me anymore, um, to set boundaries across, uh, about, well, set boundaries in a relationship where it's not healthy uh, or they've crossed that line is triggering because then you think, oh, no, I'm shunning them just like, so you've got to work through that process. And I think the way you described it was really, really good that you do have that right of being treated in a healthy normal way and you have the right to say if you're not going to treat me that way then that's different from an organization shunning you <laughs> it's totally different I, I blocked my parents for a number of years right yeah the sermons the naming the shaming the you're an embarrassment to the family come back to the family you're you're doing it wrong you're going to hell and i said you don't get to do this if you do it again i'm going to remove you from my circle i'm going to block your number yeah. And it happened. They, they sent another volley straight away. And I just went, I'm like, I'm sorry, I have to do this. And I blocked everything. And I, we didn't speak for a number of years. That's their fault. It yeah. was not my fault. And I think, you know, we in the ex-believer community need to see it through that lens. You have no guilt. They forced that hand. They don't get to do that to you. And uh, once you understand why it's happening from that perspective, I think you'll feel better about yourself and feel better about the fact that you had to do it, you know? And then hopefully one day they'll be able to play by the rules. You decide then if you want to crack that door back open and let them in, but that's your call and your call alone. Yeah. A few uh, months ago, we had a speaker on that uh, had said a statement that just floored me. She said, um, once you're out of the house, your parents are in your life by invite only. And um, I had never, ever considered that. And it made uh, made me 
made the decision that I had to make so much easier after I heard that. And, um, uh, it, and it really helped me to uh, create the boundary that was absolutely necessary. So I'm really, really glad to hear that you're echoing that as well. I don't know. It took me a while to get past it. You know, I just felt like, well, I'm their child. So I'm, they'll, they'll say to my family, well, you know, it's mom. So we got to put up with it. And I'm like, well, who wrote that rule? Right. Right. I, I didn't write that rule. That's not my rule. I don't, I don't have to do that. If she's going to be toxic, I, I'll say, stop being toxic. And if she mm. continues to be toxic, then I just turn that little faucet off and I go over here to find community and, and healthy challenge, not echo chambers, but people who can disagree with me while also respecting and valuing me for who I am. Yeah. And sometimes family is the family that you choose. Exactly. My, the yeah. thinking atheist community was my family when I came out of the faith. They became the people who acted like family. They weren't on my bio family tree, but they were my family and they remain so today. And I think groups like this are a great representation of that, right? Family acts like family. They got your back. Doesn't mean they agree. Doesn't mean they're always going to echo everything. Doesn't mean they're always going to like you, but it does mean they will respect you and have your back. That's what community and family does. That's beautiful. <sighs> Sherry, you okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm just breathing and, you know, Taking it in. I speak life into your into your soul, <laughs> sister. I speak life. Can I Something get an like amen? Yes, amen. amen. Ramen, Seth. Ramen. Yes, that's it. I think we've got time for one, one more, or two or more questions. Two yeah. more. Oh, I'm going to have the next one. Can I have yep. the next one? Okay. All right. Uh, so, Seth, is there a difference between being a non-believer? And an atheist. I mean, an atheist does not believe in it. My the definition that I hold to is I don't believe in a god. I don't. I don't like there is no god. Um, I just don't buy it. I'm not convinced. I'm a non-believer. Here's a here's a better way I think to approach the issue in my perspective. You know, I remember uh, in his documentary, The Fog of War. It was Errol, uh, not Errol Morris, who was McNamara, who said. Don't answer the question you were asked. Answer the question you wish you were asked. So I'm going to cheat just a little bit here. <laughs> but I see a lot of squabbling in uh, atheist circles about, well, are you an atheist? Are you an agnostic? You know, are you a secular? Are you a humanist? Are you this or that? And labels have value. They have use. They're descriptives. I'm an atheist. I'm not convinced there is a God. I don't hold a God belief. Okay. But uh, I don't. And people come to me and they're like, what do I call myself? And I'm like, I don't give a shit. Uh, you're on a journey? Okay, great. If you, are you not sure? Okay, fine. Are you, are you uh, whatever it is that you are, it's okay to be that. And if you're not, some people are atheists, but they don't like the word. Maybe it's got certain baggage or maybe they encountered an atheist online that made them crazy or they just despised or maybe they're terrified of saying it. I mean, I think I'd like to see more of the normalization of it, but but I'm more interested in the intent behind the label. I'm more interested in the person behind the label. So yeah, a non-believer in God is an atheist. But whenever somebody comes to me and they're like, what am I? What do I call myself? I'm like, I just don't care. I mean, and I don't mean that in a callous way, but if you're, if you're whatever, as long as it's on your terms 
and it represents a life that's being lived authentically on your terms, you embrace what's good for you, whatever works for you. Are you on a journey? Are you an agnostic? Are you an atheist? Are you secular? Are you this? Are you that? Just find whatever that is. And if there's not a label, don't worry about it because your life isn't reduced to a byline, right? You're not a bumper sticker. You are a flesh and blood, three-dimensional, wildly complex human being with a past, a present, and a future. And it may not fit on a bumper sticker. It's okay. Just take the journey on your terms. And that's usually how I approach questions like that. Brilliantly answered, really. But I get why the question gets asked. Because if you've been indoctrinated from childhood that you are X, Y, Z, the whole idea of, okay, well, I'm not that now. What am I? The whole notion of even thinking about maybe not even having a label, uh, just spins the mind. So, Oh, the one that gets me is uh, you now are, are worshiping at the religion of atheism because everything is religious if you're a believer, course. right? Of course. I'm not, I'm not an activist who is an equal, who is being a part of a community that encourage each other, blah, blah, blah. I'm an atheist preacher. You aren't uh, a group of people recovering. You are a religious support group for atheists, right? And that's because they train you to see everything in religious models. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do find that interesting out there. But uh, you know, you don't have to use a label if you don't want to, and you get to choose whatever label you use. That's it. That's it. Which is exciting, really. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, we get to uh, create this life for our own instead of having it be dictated and, and uh, planned out for us at yeah. time. And we've got uh, time for one final question. Um, and it's kind of going back to the conversation or the, the presentation that uh, you gave. Um, and, and I've heard this so many times, so many times we hear from our friends and family that America was founded on a, as a Christian nation, on Christian tenants. How do you feel we can deal with this with our friends and family? Like we just pick our battles again, but... <laughs> What are yeah, your you're not going to convince them because they made an emotional connection to the fact that, I mean, they've got a near saintly picture in their minds of George Washington as he stands up on the boat, as it, you know, it crosses the river and the flags and the smoke and the, you know, the bombast of it all. And, you know, all of our founders were devout Jesus. Do you know anything about the founders? Founders? No. Um, I actually did a 30-minute pr- online presentation called America is Not a Christian Nation, where we get into, and I wrote about it. I've got a whole chapter in my book, Confessions of a Former Fox News Christian, where we get into the religious criticisms by the founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson was a huge religious, religious critic. Thomas Paine, John Adams, James Madison, these were not devout evangelicals. So I always like to sort of say, well, actually know and hear some of the data not thinking I'm going to change their minds with the data, but they do need to be contradicted. They need to be exposed to the fact that there were other things out there. Uh, there's other information. The book, The Founding Myth by Andrew Seidel really dismantles the Christian nation idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about, you know, and usually I'll, I'll lead with questions because they'll say something like, well, it's a Christian nation because uh, uh, under God's on the money. Okay, fine. Uh, when did that start? nobody knows when did they start printing you know it wasn't originally on the money do you know how it got there because i I do but i'm curious do you know uh well it's in our pledge of allegiance that's interesting who wrote the pledge of allegiance they don't know what year was the pledge of allegiance written i don't know were the words under gods in the original pledge of allegiance i don't know they don't understand but by putting it in a question form 
they are now starting to have to finally defend a truth claim that they are making. It, they become uncomfortable. But again, we're hoping that that discomfort creates, that cognitive dissonance creates a moment where when they're being more honest with themselves in a position of safety, remember, people will never be attacked into changing their minds. People will always change their minds from a position of safety. That's why if you're debating an apologist, I'm not debating the apologist. I'm presenting ideas for the people who are safely watching in the periphery, right? If I'm with someone, I don't raise my voice and call them names and attack them because they are not going to change their minds unless they feel safe. So questions allow us to, to make them feel like they're not being attacked. But by asking and answering those questions in such a way, perhaps we can allow them to realize that maybe they don't know what they thought they knew about the founders. Did you know that many of our founding fathers were slave owners? You know, so should we take everything that they say to the bank or were they just flawed human beings? And maybe there were some things that we should take into consideration. Maybe not everything they did was worth following. Maybe they weren't saints. Uh, nuanced conversations done in good faith featuring a lot of questions. That's been my tactic. Beautiful. Thank you, Seth. Thank you yep. so, so much for coming on um, to our little show here and having a conversation with us about this important topic. Really, really. It's an honor. It. Forgive me. I, I hope the answers haven't been too long and protracted, but it's uh, it's one of those things I'm <laughs> passionate about. I think I'm like you guys. Right. I, I think I, I have so much that I want to just get out. And I, right. I really do want to encourage people that it's okay. I mean, I think that's what I needed to hear the most when I was coming out of my faith and recovering from all the decades and punishing myself for not figuring it out sooner and worried about what everybody yeah. else was going to say and not sure if I was even valid. I just need someone to say, man, it's all right. It's, it's okay. You know, you've got yeah. one life is too short, not to be authentic, not to be mm -hmm. your authentic self, whatever that is, be that, do that, pursue that, embrace that without apology. And I think that's really the message I want to leave everybody with today. You know, just an authentic life is my wish for you. Do it, be it, and hold on to it with everything you got. God damn it, Seth. And <laughs> cut. We're all done here. <laughs> See you later, folks. <laughs> Recovering from Religion is a nonprofit organization whose mission it is to provide hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non belief. Hope, healing, and support is waiting for you on our website, recoveringfromreligion.org. There, you can speak or chat with a trained agent who will work with you through your struggles and doubts or to help find resources that may work for you. You can also find local Recovering From Religion support groups in your area for the long-term recovery work. Resources specifically curated for those struggling with doubts, disbelief, and trauma can also be found on the RFR website. To connect with a secular therapist in your area, go to seculartherapy.org and create an account. If you'd like to support the work that RFR does, you can donate or sign up as a volunteer on the Recovering From Religion website. It's also a big help subscribing to the RFR YouTube channel, our blog, or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to us at rfrx at recoveringfromreligion.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll be with us next time on the Recovering From Religion podcast.